Right, so as we um, continue in our series of Samuel, we've got to this juncture where it was very convenient to be able to pull in the David Shepherd King's story and also then next week to look at the Shepherd King, which is Jesus. So the first point I've got, and there are points, if you like points, I hadn't actually written this with points, but there are some and I pulled them out. And the first one is God has a plan. Um, you've heard me talk about that and we preach about that a number of different times over the last sort of six or seven years. But this one, let's, let's dwell on that for, for a moment and look at the text that we've got here in 1 Samuel 16. And just I will just go through it here and you'll be able to follow it in your Bibles. You see, despite God's rejection of Saul and the issues that Samuel had with him, Samuel still mourns for Saul. And that's an incredible thing because he knows that God has turned his back on him and he knows why he's turned his back on him. But it shows you the mark of the man that Samuel is, that he still mourns for Saul and for Saul's sad state. You know, God is aware of the troubles that sit within our hearts and he's not an uncaring God. And in, like Samuel, he knows of the needless burdens that we carry and the different worries that flood into our minds that have no place to be there. Here, Samuel is mourning Saul's fall from grace and to the point of where he is now a rejected king. The first king is a rejected king and that God has moved on. But Samuel is stuck in the past and hasn't moved on with God. And now God has got a plan and Samuel isn't too keen. And he isn't too keen about the part that he has to play in it. Because he fears that if Saul hears about it, that there are terrible consequences that are going to come his way. What would it be like to be found to be the person that anoints a replacement king when a king is already reigning on the throne? So it's not an easy position that God has put Samuel in. And there might be situations that God has placed you in that you are not particularly comfortable with and you're not particularly happy with. But we have to acknowledge who's in charge. We have to acknowledge who God is and who we are. And we then need to trust and to come before him and lay our worries, our thoughts, our plans and to follow his plan. You see, what God was doing here was very convenient. I won't, we won't have time to look at it, but you can later. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 21, it's part of the law that was given to Moses, that Moses brought to the people after being up on Mount Sinai, there was lots of different things that people had to do. There wasn't just the Ten Commandments. If it was just the Ten Commandments, then, okay, but why was he there so long? It's, it's a phenomenal list Deuteronomy has got. Part of our society today is based upon the law that God gave to the people on Mount Sinai then. And the particular point that is mentioned here in Deuteronomy 21 is if there was an unsolved murder, 
in a area than what the priests are supposed to do. They are supposed to gather the elders together, they are supposed to cleanse them, and then supposed to sacrifice. And then God will forgive the people in that area. So when he turns up unannounced, and not part of his regular, because he did have a regular route where he would go once a year, he would go to various places within Israel. He's got this unannounced thing. So they are wondering, what judgment has God brought upon us? And so God uses this route, which is almost like a diversionary tactic. They are thinking that, but God's actually doing this. And the only person who knew what God was doing, well, he thought he knew what God was doing, was Samuel. You see, God leads us step by step by step. Who here has God revealed everything that God will do for you over the next five years, ten years? Has anybody here had God revealed to them what God is going to do with you over the next year? We're coming. In, we're going to have New Year's resolutions in three weeks' time, and we're going to make some bold statements about the things that we will do and the changes that we will make. And we might make plans about the things that we want to do. I remember making plans into uh, as we can hit 2020. What a great year that was going to be! But God had other ideas, and in a way, he brought us closer to Him. God knows what he's doing. It is rare that God gives you the big picture. I mean, he did to Moses. Uh, it's undoubtedly Moses knew that he was going to lead his people out of captivity and into the wilderness. The, the, the objective was to get to the promised land. But things happened and Moses wasn't able to fulfill that last part, although he saw the promised land but never entered it. The disciples were given lesson by lesson by lesson over those three years, sitting there with Jesus, sitting in the boat, seeing the storm, seeing the miracles, seeing and hearing what God was telling them about heaven, the relationship that he had, what his purpose for being here, step by step by step, bit by bit by bit. Not all in one go, but bit by bit. He provides us a guide as well, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. We're not on our own, but bit by bit by bit, so that we can trust him. So God has a plan. The elders of the town are worried and concerned, and they get there, and they're worried as why Samuel was deigned to visit them, and they're worried about what sin was going to be uncovered in front of them. But this clears the way for Samuel to be there. So we get on to point two. How should we prepare ourselves to meet with God? To notice, to come unto worship and to sacrifice, first they needed to consecrate themselves. They, like us, are coming into the presence of God. Now, you haven't come into the presence here today to listen to me talk. You've come to praise God and to hear what God has got to say. And we need to put that right in our minds as to what we are doing. We're not just ticking a box for an hour and, a, and once a week we go to church and therefore we've ticked that. It's a bit like if you're a cub that you turn up and you get an award at the end of the evening because you've done something. You are coming to meet an almighty God. 
how many times, and maybe even this morning, you've rushed out from home, you've gone around and you've grabbed various things because you knew you, ne you know you need them, so you, you grab all of those, you, you build a mental list of the people that you need to see because there are things that you need to pass on or things you need them to do, or you just haven't seen them for a week, I must see them, I haven't seen them for a little while. So you're thinking about that. And then you navigate the streets or the pavements. A number of you live nearby, so you walk. Some of you catch buses. Some of you drive your cars. And the traffic wasn't great today, was it, Bill? And the sun was in the wrong place in the sky, and it just wasn't great. And, and you arrive at church exhausted. Is that really how that we should be? Is this really consecrated and preparing ourselves to come and meet with an almighty God? You know, the Old Testament is, is not some a book of history that is, it, it's there on the shelf. Um, we're more enlightened, so we've got the New Testament, and the Old Testament's good for reference. No, it is a live book that has things that we can learn from. And what we can learn from that one is that God is an amazing God, that he is patient, and if you, if you ever question his patience, just read the book of Judges. Read kings and see what the kings did and the amount of times that the people rejected and God still loved them. He was angry at times and brought judgment at times, yes, to bring people back to him. He has an enduring love that then sees itself with Jesus on the cross. He has a desire despite of the people. He has a desire for us despite us and all of our faults, and all of our ways that we have, which are not his ways, but he still loves us. But maybe we should at least think about how we prepare ourselves, how we come before him, what position we give to God in our week. And we can thank him because he is a faithful God. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. And what grace... Now, grace being God's unmerited favour, time and time and time again. You can look at your own lives. You know this to be true. He loves us, he loves us, he loves us. We let him down, he still loves us. He helps us, he changes us bit by bit by bit. What a wonderful God we live. We, we, sir. And what a wonderful God that we know. Point three, and this is the one that really Samuel comes to face to face with. He's there, he see, he's got the sons going in front of him, he's got the firstborn in front of him, and the firstborn surely is the obvious choice. He's strong, he's healthy, and he is effectively going to be the head of the family when Jesse dies. It's the obvious choice, isn't it? But God has a, has a little message for Samuel. You know, this is Samuel, the Samuel who is, he's experienced. He's been a leader of the people for a long time. He had taken over from Eli. He had seen the people reject God as, as, as the immediate guide, and particularly him as being the guide, and replace him with a king and what a king that turned out to be. So he's experienced a lot. And even he gets it wrong because he's judging from what he sees as opposed to what God sees. 
You see, God was looking at the heart. And although there was a strapping young man standing in front of him, God knew where his heart was. We don't know. It's not recorded in Scripture. It's not relevant. God knows. And I I guess Elib knew as well. So for some, we might find this a troubling prospect, that God doesn't just look at our image that we portray, who we look to be to other people, who maybe we look to be today sitting in church, who we have looked to be sitting in church over the years. God sees us and sees our heart and sees past all of the charade and sees straight through to us. Can you imagine being one of those sons standing there? So there's a parade of hopefuls. that the seven sons sitting there and the first one comes up. And in the morning, they didn't leave home or didn't wake up thinking, today I'm going to be king, did they? It wasn't a thought that entered their head. And then suddenly Samuel turns up and announced that one of your sons is going to become king. So just for a moment, there's a glimmer of hope. Could it be me? And the firstborn clearly would have thought, well, it's got to be me, hasn't it? And then Samuel says, that's not him. You imagine what it must feel like to, to feel that you're going to be the king and then all of a sudden it's not you. And then you're the second eldest and, and, and part of you is feeling really disappointed for your brother, of course, but at the same time thinking, oh, it's going to be me. It's going to be me. And one by one, hopes are raised and hopes are dashed. It's not you. And this repeats again and again and again. And then you've got the seventh son. And if you remember, the seven has got a significance in the Bible. We will go over it shortly. In fact, let's, let's go over it now. Seven in Bible terms means com- completeness or perfection. So the seventh son, the last one of the list here, sitting on here, he's seen the other six go, and he's thinking biblical principles are coming into bear. The seventh son, the complete, the perfect one, it's going to be me, because there isn't anybody else anyway. And God says, no, it's not him. And Samuel, totally amused as to what's going on, and turns to Jesse and says, are these all of your sons? Beginning to think, maybe you didn't quite get right from God what was going on. But God was in charge, and God did know. And yes, there was an eighth son. So our fourth point then, and this leads into our final hymn, it's, what are you worth... And where does that worth come from? So what are you worth and where does that worth come from? David wasn't the seventh son. Yeah, so he's not the complete, he's not the perfect. In fact, he wasn't even his father's choice because if he was his father's choice, he w- surely his father would have brought him in and had one of his servants go in to look after the sheep. But his father didn't think that either. Because surely he should have been part of the assembled 
But instead, he's doing the work of a hired hand on a field. He's not thought of. He's an afterthought. And in this situation, now he's what's known as unclean, because shepherds were unclean. So who could possibly think that this youngest, the least significant, would be God's choice of king? Saul from the tribe of Benjamin was handsome. He was good-looking. He was taller than everybody else in Israel. And therefore, he was the obvious choice. And he was the choice of God at that moment. But not so David. David is from the tribe of Judah, which at least is the first tribe of the tribes of 12 of them. Interestingly enough, when they are all taken into captivity, all of the tribes, only two of the tribes return from captivity. The other ten vanish from the face of history. So in 538 BC, interestingly, it is the tribe of Benjamin and it is the tribe of Judah that return to the promised land. The others never do. So have you ever thought of yourself like this? Not worth anything, have had no value, and quite frankly, pretty useless. If so, then the Bible in Corinthians has got some good news for you. Because in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27, Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential. Not many were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one can boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. So look from in the Old Testament, look at who God uses. He uses a rejected and jailed son in Joseph. He chooses a reluctant and a murderer to become the leader of his people in Moses. He chooses a poor widowed, penniless, Moabitess, Ruth, to become the great-grandmother of Jesse and therefore of David, and ultimately the line into Jesus. He chooses a reluctant and runaway prophet to save the great city of Nineveh in Jonah. He saves a hot-headed and an impetuous and a denier in Peter. And finally, he chooses a Pharisee and a persecutor of the church in Saul, who became Paul. You know, the Bible is full of the people that you wouldn't choose that God does. Samuel orders the crowd to gather the family and the elders not to sit down until David arrives. As soon as he approaches, the Lord says straight to Samuel, he is the one, arise, anoint him. See, the Lord changes everything, not man. Because we can clearly see from here that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon David from that day and David becomes powerful from that moment on. 
Notice the nobody becomes the somebody because of the spirit of the Lord. Not because of who David was, but because of what God has chosen to do by his willing servant. So let's return to the seven then. There is the issue of the seven. David wasn't the seventh, was he? If you go to Chronicles 1 and verse, so 1 Chronicles 2 and verse 13 to 15, and I'll read it here. And this is the line that's recorded, um, the genealogy that's recorded of David and uh, down the line. Jesse was the father of Elab, firstborn. The second son was Abinadad. The third, Shimna. The fourth, Nithnor. The fifth, Radai. The sixth, Ozem. And the seventh, David. Some point between David being the eighth and the record being recorded here in Chronicles, one of the sons passes at a very young age and David becomes the seventh son. Jesus, or God, so I say, has moved David to that position of perfect and completeness in the line. It was God's plan, hidden from everybody, but God knew the order that he wanted. So that's the first point. Also, if you remember when we did the study in Ruth, number 10 was important because it, it signifies um, completeness and authority. And in Ruth chapter 4 and verse 18 through to 22, there is a list of beget this and beget that. So it's the, it's the father becomes the son, becomes the father, etc., etc. You go through Perez, Hezon, Ram, Abinadad, Hershon, Salmon, Boaz, that's who on seven, Obed, Jesse, ten, David. So this signifies that God had chosen his son, the seventh son of Jesse, and the tenth in line from Perez, to be his complete authority on earth and to be his shepherd king. It is written... In Samuel 1.13, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And in Acts it says, after removing Saul, he made David their king. God, this is God talking about him now, so not just somebody giving on a good school report, God giving a report on David. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So David, God chose, not man. God selected him, he elected him, and he transformed him. Therefore, we are called to be his servants. We who bring nothing of worth to him, but God has selected us, God has elected us, and God transforms us. And I'd like him to look at the picture of a butterfly. So if we go back to a caterpillar, the caterpillar, is it, it's all right. Go back before that, you've got that grub. But the transformation that that butterfly, go, that, that grub goes into to become that butterfly, the beautiful butterfly that flutters around showing the glory of God, the transformation of something that is not attractive to something which is stunning and reminds us of summer and lifts our hearts, 
And that shows you just the creative work that God can do. Are we, effectively then, caterpillars for God so that we can become butterflies? Terrible analogy, I'm sorry for it, but that's what we're kind of looking for here. We have found our worth through the second shepherd king, that is Jesus, which we will encounter next Sunday morning. I wonder if we can close with our final hymn this morning, which for some might be a new one. It's going to be um, on the screen behind. It's a Graham Kendrick song, um, and it fits in beautifully with everything that we've gone through this morning. It is, my worth is not what I own.